Good evening. I am William Propp, director of the Judaic Studies program at UCSD, and I believe this is the largest audience I've ever addressed. You're here, of course, to attend a lecture by Sir Martin Gilbert of Merton College, Oxford, and the City of London, but for two more days, the Herman Wilk Distinguished Visiting Professor in Judaic Studies at the University of California, San Diego. Martin Gilbert is one of the most prolific, diverse, and solid historians of our time. After establishing his place in the field of modern British history with a gargantuan biography of Sir Winston Churchill, Gilbert has directed his attention to broader topics such as the two world wars. A consistent theme, however, already even in the Churchill biography, and the reason for Sir Martin's presence at UCSD is an interest specifically in the Jewish history of the 20th century, certainly their most eventful century since the first. Now I invite Sir Martin to take the stage and enlighten us one last time before leaving our shores. Hail and farewell and lehitraot. We'll see you again. I'm very honored to be asked to give this my second public lecture at UCSD as Herman Woke Visiting Professor, and to do so in the presence of so many people who have become my friends, if I may say so, since I arrived here two months ago. I'm only sorry that my two months is about to end. The Jewish tradition of the righteous among the nations Hasidei, Umot, Haolam, originally referred to those nations who were the non-Israelite tribes of biblical times. And the first two righteous among the nations recognized by the Jewish sages were Shifra and Puach, two Egyptian midwives who defied Pharaoh's edict to drown Israelite children in the Nile. The third righteous, according to Jewish tradition, was Pharaoh's daughter, who violated her father's own decree and saved Moses, bringing him up as her own son. In the Bible, Pharaoh's daughter has no name. The Jewish sages gave her one, Batya, the daughter of God. Since 1965, the State of Israel has recognized almost 20,000 righteous, 20,000 non-Jews who helped save Jewish lives during the Holocaust. Like Shifra, Puach, and Batya, each one of these 20,000 has a name and a story. In every instance, an uplifting story of decency, courage, and hope amid the dark night of the Holocaust. In the new edition of my Atlas of the Holocaust, I give their numbers on the map country by country. The most recent group of individuals to be recognized as righteous were men, most of them diplomats, who did not necessarily risk their own lives, but did save Jewish life, often on a considerable scale, and often suffered in their profession for doing so. Their champion, incidentally, 
Eric Saul, who has mounted an amazing exhibition about them which travels the world, is with us here tonight. One of those diplomats was Chinese, one of three Chinese honored by Yad Vashem as righteous. His name was Dr. Feng Shan Ho, and in Vienna, he issued many thousands of visas in 1938 and 1939, which enabled Austrian Jews, even those in concentration camps, to leave Europe altogether. His government, the Chinese Nationalist Government of Chiang Kai-shek, did not support his efforts, but he persevered nevertheless. In Berlin, a British diplomat, Captain Foley, took considerable initiatives to issue documents that enabled those who were not entitled to do so to enter Palestine. On the Swiss border, a German police officer, Paul Gruninger, defied his superiors again and again to enable hundreds of German Jews to enter Switzerland and safety. On another border, that between France and Spain, a Portuguese diplomat, Aristide de Souza Mendes, disobeyed the orders of his superiors and issued several thousand documents that enabled Jews who were fleeing the advancing German army to cross into Spain and safety in June 1940. An American has also been recognized for his part in this act of diplomatic rescue. He was not a diplomat, but the representative of a private American organization, the American Emergency Rescue Committee, based on the French port city of Marseille. His name was Varian Fry. From August 1940 to August 1941, Fry and the small team working with him issued more than 1,500 visas, enabling German and Austrian Jewish refugees then in France to leave for the United States. In May 1941, Eleanor Roosevelt had written to Fry's wife, Eileen, I think he will have to come home because he has done things which the government does not feel it can stand behind. Among those who were able to go to the United States, thanks to Varian Fry, was the Jewish Viennese writer Franz Werfel, whose novel The Forty Days of Musadar was and still is by far the most powerful presentation of the Armenian genocide after World War I. In the French city of Toulouse throughout 1941, five Quaker delegates of the American Friends Service Committee were active in placing hundreds of Jewish children with Christian families who protected them. The five Quakers were from five different countries. One of them, Harriet Maple, was from the United States. Behind German lines, no foreign diplomats could operate. As the German army conquered country after country, those millions of Jews trapped behind the German lines under Nazi rule had no one to turn to but the local inhabitants who were themselves under the thumb of the Gestapo. 
with more than three million Jews, of whom only a few thousand survived deportation, death camp, and slave labor, Poland, the first country to be conquered, was the one which has the largest number of those who've been recognized as righteous among the nations. Some 5,632 to date, and about three to 400 every year being added to that number. Indeed, population-wise, Poland has the highest percentage of righteous than any other country but the Netherlands. Hungary, with a half the population of Poland, has only one-tenth of the righteous. The Polish story is complex. There had been massive anti-Semitism, and that continued throughout the war. There was massive betrayal by Poles of Jews in hiding. Even after the war ended, more than 1,500 Jews were murdered by Poles when those Jews tried to return to their homes. Yet the church in Poland, the professions, ordinary people, all themselves, the victims of Nazism, showed the noblest of activities at this time. Recently, there has been a very strong account of a Polish village called Jedwabne, where the thousand Jews of the village were murdered before the Germans were fully in control by the local Polish villagers. Yet even in that terrifying hotbed of anti-Jewish activity, a Polish Catholic woman, Antonina Wyszykowski, took into her tiny home and hid and saved seven Jews. The problems and dangers of helping Jews were enormous. Most of those who came seeking shelter had to be given it for months and even years. In conditions of severe rationing and food shortages, food had to be found by the rescuer for these people in hiding. For many of those in hiding in cellars or barns or attics, there could be no lights turned on, no fires lit, no visible evidence of people in hiding. For many, not even a chance of minimal exercise. Refuse had to be disposed of secretly. Food and drink had to be provided on a regular basis. I came across many examples, extraordinary ones, but many, in which a husband or a wife concealed from the other spouse the fact that he or she was hiding a Jew or even several Jews in a barn at the end of their farm or even in some cases in a ditch near their farm somehow managing to take out to them the food which they would require to survive. The penalty for hiding a Jew was death, and this meant, in many cases, the death of the whole family, not merely the individual who had taken the Jew or Jews in. The Germans themselves were constantly demanding that this penalty should be applied. and tens of thousands of non-Jews were murdered by the SS for hiding Jews. 
Above all else, there lay the threat of betrayal. Uh, a neighbor who would point the finger at someone who would live next to him or her for years and years, that would point them out to the Gestapo as someone who is hiding Jews. And we know from the archives the extent to which the Germans worked on persuading people to betray, calculated the amount which would persuade a peasant, himself very hungry, persuade him to point the finger at the farm where Jews were being hidden. Sometimes the Germans organized hunts in forests where Jews were known to be hiding, hunts through villages where in many cases perhaps a dozen of the villagers were hiding Jews. I'd like to read a proclamation dated the 19th of December 1941 from a German provincial governor. It has recently been established that Jews from outside the district are still to be found here. This exposes the entire population to the danger of the spread of typhus. The entire population must help in averting this danger. I have therefore decided to assign a reward to all those inhabitants who take a particularly successful share of this decisive operation. Any person who can give appropriate police organs details of any Jew in hiding or of any place where someone has given lodging or board to a Jew will be rewarded. And in the archives you find many different versions of the reward. How much did it cost to persuade a neighbor or a villager to betray his own people and the Jew? The most frequent was five kilograms of flour. For this, one meter of flour was the reward for betrayal hundreds and thousands of times collected. In areas where there was a particular shortage, particularly in Ukraine, of salt, it was sufficient only for two kilograms of salt. And for this, people hunted through villages. The one who found the Jew in hiding received two kilograms of salt. There were some areas where the locals seemed to be more resistant to bribery. And so, a bottle of vodka, or in special circumstances, a bottle of brandy, was provided by the SS for anyone who came to them and said, at number five, such and such a street, or at the farm in such and such a lane, the Jew is in hiding. All the people I'm going to talk about took the risk of being betrayed, of being found, and of being killed with their family. 
what type of rescue took place. There were many examples of whole communities who decided that they must take Jews in at whatever risk. The most remarkable was the Baptist community in the eastern Polish province of Volin, now part of Ukraine. The Baptists in some 15 villages in Volin believed that it was their duty to prove their faith by hiding Jews at whatever cost. One of those Jews has described the moment when in a field near a village a Baptist approached him. He immediately understood who I was. With tears in his eyes he comforted me and invited me to his house. Together we entered his house and I understood instantly that I had met a wonderful person. God brought an important guest to our house, he said to his wife. We should thank God for this blessing. They kneeled down and I heard a prayer coming out of their pure and simple hearts, not written in a single prayer book. I heard a song addressed to God, thanking God for the opportunity of meeting a son of Israel in these crazy days. And then he goes on, when they stopped praying, we sat down at the table for a meal. The peasant's wife gave me milk and potatoes. Before the meal, the master of the house read a chapter from the Bible. Here it is, I thought, this is their big secret. It is this eternal book that has raised their morality to such unbelievable heights. It is this very book that filled their heart with love for the Jews. In this particular region, villagers, Baptist villagers, who did not have a Jew in hiding, would often go to someone who was hiding a Jew and beg for the opportunity of taking a Jew into their home. Sometimes people change their characters considerably. In the city of Lvov, in eastern Galicia, two thieves, Leopold Socha and Stefan Wroblewski, who had spent the ten years before the outbreak of war stealing and hiding their stolen goods before they disposed of them while the police were searching, hiding them in the sewers of Lvov. When Socha and Wroblewski saw what was happening to the Jews in the city, the terrible slaughters and deportations, they arranged for as many Jews as possible to go down into the sewers and be found a secure hiding place there. Twenty-one of those whom Socha and Wroblewski took down survived the war, survived the terrible flooding which takes place in sewers survived the nightmare conditions of darkness and rats and privation. Every week, Sochon Wroblewski would take the dirty clothes, the uh, pathetic clothes of those in hiding, and return them washed. He also brought them a Jewish prayer book, which he found in the ghetto 
which had been completely stripped of its Jews who were murdered. And at Passover, knowing that the Jews would not eat bread, and he was hanging down little pieces of bread into the sewer at the end of a wire, he brought them a large load of potatoes so that they wouldn't have to violate the prohibition on eating leavened bread. Socha was accidentally run over a few months after the end of the Second World War. And as he lay on the pavement dying, a large number of people passing crossed themselves, made the sign of the cross, and said that it was God's punishment for hiding Jews. Yesterday I was taken by one of my colleagues and his family to the San Diego Zoo. Uh, and of course no visitor to this city could return home without visiting the zoo. But it reminded me of another extraordinary story of the righteous among the nations. Another couple, Jan and Antonina Zombinski. The Zombinskis were in fact the very first Poles to be recognized as righteous among the nations by Yad Vashem in Jerusalem. Jan Zombinski was the director of the Warsaw Zoo. The Germans regarded him very highly. From the beginning of the deportation of Jews from Warsaw in the summer of 1942, Zombinski decided to use the empty, deep cages and empty, deep caves in the zoo to hide Jews. Several hundred Jews passed through the Warsaw Zoo, fed and guarded by Zombinski and his wife, and then found by them hiding places, safe hiding places, with other poles. He had his own two-story home, which is still there. I visited it at the entrance to the zoo, and often German officers and even SS men would come. He was a convivial and be entertained by him. He was their friend. And what they didn't know was that 20 Jews were hiding on the second floor and in the attic of his home. And they survived the war. Tragically, Zombinski himself was captured by the Germans during the Polish uprising and killed but his wife continued to help those Jews in hiding in their home and in the city. Poland has a long tradition of anti-Semitism. And one of the leading interwar intellectual anti-Semites in Poland was a woman, Zofia Kosak, a famous Polish writer and novelist. And she, in fact, was head of a an organization called the Catholic Front for the Reborn Poland, which argued that Poland would be a much better place if the Jews went elsewhere. From the moment of the establishment of the Warsaw Ghetto and the incredible and terrible cruelties inflicted by the Nazis on the Jews of Warsaw, Sofia Cossack decided that this was not acceptable. That however much intellectually she might wish Poland to be free of Jews, the murder of Jews was totally wrong. 
And so she published a clandestine protest, which was put up on all the walls in Warsaw, in which she warned that all Poles had to act against this. What worries me, her protest said, is that the dying Jews are surrounded solely by Pontius Pilots, washing their hands of any fault. This silence cannot be tolerated any longer. Whatever its motives, silence is despicable. In the face of crime, one cannot remain passive. Who remains silent in the face of the slaughter becomes an enabler of the murderer. Who does not condemn then consents. And so Zofia Cossack got a group of friends together and they founded an organization called Zegota, the Council for the Assistance of the Jews of Poland. And they distributed in safe houses, in safe cellars, more than 5,000 Polish Jews. They opened branches in the main Polish cities. And they had a special children's section headed by a remarkable woman, Irena Sendlerova, which placed more than 2,500 Jewish children in safe homes. All this time, while the ghetto was surrounded, while it was death to leave it, and while the deportations of the death camps were continuing every day. Irena Sendlerova was caught by the Gestapo and tortured so severely that for the rest of her life she remained an appalling cripple, but she refused to divulge the names and addresses where the Jew Jewish children were in hiding. One more Polish story of the 5,000. A young Polish doctor, recently graduated from the medical faculty of Warsaw University, embarking on a career as a surgeon when war came. And he had decided that his speciality would be plastic surgery. He smuggled himself into the ghetto, met with the Jewish leaders, and told them that he had devised an operation to reverse circumcision. His name was Felix Cannabus, and more than a thousand Jews he operated on and enabled them to leave the ghetto as if they were non-Jews. Felix Cannabus was recognized after the war when he came to a conference, a medical conference in Philadelphia, was recognized there by three survivors who he had happened have saved by this method and it was they who then ensured that somehow he would obtain recognition for his work. I come now to Germany. The Germany of 35 million adults in 1939 had 358 righteous among the nations recognized by the beginning of this year. One in every 100,000 German adults. And their actions were all the more remarkable 
because Germany had been under the control of the Nazis, the Gestapo, since 1933. And almost all the German liberals, socialists, communists, decent people, had long ago been arrested and sent to concentration camps. Still, there were Germans who were prepared to stand up and do what they could and try to maintain secrecy even in the center of the German Reich. One of them was the head of a circus, Adolf Althoff. And he worked out, it had to be always with ingenuity, that no one would really search a traveling circus. And so the two ladies who led the elephants into the circus, the children of the clowns, people who are in a circus and around it were increasingly Jews whom Adolf Althoff had brought in to save. And in Berlin, a man called Otto Weit, who ran a brush factory, because there were no German males who could work in a brush factory, because all German males were conscripted and fighting, persuaded the German authorities in Berlin that Jews must be employed working on this crucial work of making brushes. And they said, no, uh, we need the able-bodied Jews for slave labor. We need to send them to the east. Often, of course, that was a euphemism for killing them. And so he said, well, I only really need, since the work can be done by hand, very simply, I only need blind people and deaf or mute people who can't possibly have any use in a great factory in the East. And so White took in some 200 blind and deaf mutes, and some of them survived the war. In the eastern city of Vilnius, Vilna, a German army major, Karl Plage, who was in charge of the enormous army vehicle repair park, German army repair park in the city, employed dozens of Jews, again insisting that their work was essential. He even persuaded the authorities to let himself set up a special camp adjacent to his motor repair park for his Jewish workers. So they were taken out of the ghetto and they were thereby protected. Several hundred Jews were saved from deportation by Karl Plage, by his ingenuity again. And finally, when the SS came to liquidate all the surviving Jews in Vilna, Plage warned those in his labor camp in advance, and more than 100 were able to escape, get to the forest, get away, and be saved. Many Germans worked beyond Germany, and many of those Germans who worked beyond Germany were particularly sympathetic to Jews because these were Germans who before the war had been anti-Nazi, liberal, socialist. And so in the great eastern city of Bialystok, 
a German printer, Otto Busser, not only who was printing SS material, not only took in Jews to work in his printing press, but incredibly smuggled clothing and food into the Bialystok ghetto, and when that was destroyed, smuggled arms to the Jews in the forests outside Bialystok. He, incidentally, after the war, went to carry on his printing work in Darmstadt, city in western Germany, was denounced for being a Jew lover, was forced to leave his city, and decided to go to Israel, where he lived until his death in a Christian village in the Galilee, a European Christian village in the Galilee. Two more Germans overseas I'd like to mention. One was a German lawyer, Hans-Georg Kalmeyer. Kalmeyer had been thrown out of his profession in 1933 because he had objected to the expulsion of Jews from the profession. Then he had done various work, and finally when war came, and again so many German males went off to the, to the war front, Kalmai was brought in to the legal department of the German Foreign Office. And they said to him, we're having a lot of problems in Holland. Uh, a lot of Dutch Jews are somehow evading deportation by producing spurious documents saying that they're not really Jewish. We want you to go and root out this deception. Kalmar went to Holland and there he prepared a list for the Gestapo, Kalmar's list it was known, of more than 2,000 Jews who he said could not possibly be racially Jewish. And he did it by persuading people who were all too ready to be persuaded. Surely, Mr. Cohen, Your mother was a promiscuous woman and uh, your father couldn't have been Mr. Cohen. Your father must have been some totally Aryan Dutchman. And gradually he created a whole area of, of doubt for the Gestapo, of people who had to be set aside because, uh, as Kalmar said in his official report, these Jews were much more promiscuous than we ever realized. Uh, as I said, some 2,000 Dutch Jews were saved deportation by being on Kalmar's list. And then the other list, Oskar Schindler's list, another German uh, working outside Germany, a member of the Nazi party, who used his position and his friendship with the SS to rescue more than 1,500 Jews. And most remarkably, when he was told early in 1945 that a railway wagon had reached the town of Tsitau, a sealed railway wagon, in the most terribly cold winter spell, and there were believed to be some hundred Jews sealed inside that wagon. And on the wagon was written, property of the SS. 
And clearly these Jews, wherever they were going to be sent, uh, were doomed. And so Schindler sent a fellow German, a friend of his, to the station to stick on below the notice property of the SS, a second notice, final destination, Schindler factory. And then arrange with the railways that this wagon should be sent as instructed to his factory where he broke it open of the hundred Jews inside, some twenty had already frozen to death. The other eighty, he and his wife, Emilia, nursed back to health. And they were among the Jews who followed Schindler's cortege in Jerusalem in 1974. The, the righteous among the nations were predominantly Christian, as Europe was predominantly Christian. But there were also Muslims who played their part, particularly in Bosnia and in Sarajevo, the great city, where it was a Bosnian Muslim who rescued the famous Sarajevo Haggadah, the great illuminated medieval Haggadah. And when the Germans came to him, he was a librarian in charge of the library of the museum and said, where is this book? This is one of the treasures which we need in Berlin. He said, I'm afraid to tell you that it vanished years ago. And he not only saved the Sarajevo Haggadah, but also many individual Jews. Often the righteous acts were collective. In Belgium, for example, there were several villages where almost everybody in the village took in a Jew or a Jewish family, where the village authorities connived in this, and where the, the determination of the Belgians who were themselves under German occupation and a very severe German occupation. The determination of the Belgians not to give in to this barbarism made them take incredible risks. More than four and a half thousand Belgian Jewish children were found safe homes in Christian families, convents, boarding schools, orphanages, even sanatoriums. There was a remarkable woman Yvonne Nevjean, who was the head of the National Agency for Children in Belgium. And she, rather like Zofia Cossack and Gigotta in Warsaw, organized her staff to systematically find and spirit away to safety Jewish children. In France, a similar situation obtained. And in France, the action of these villages was so successful that less than a third of French Jewry was deported to the camps. And most of those who were not deported were taken in in hiding. In France, as in Belgium, it was the church leaders who urged their people to help Jews. It was bishops, archbishops, 
priests who took a lead and took a leading risk. The village of Le Chambon-sur-Lignon hid again in the village and in the hamlets around the village several thousand Jews. But there were at least a dozen other villages like Le Chambon. Those who were caught were killed. Among them a medical doctor, Roger Le Forestier, who acted as a doctor for the children in several of these villages caught and executed. I mentioned Holland as the country with the largest proportion of righteous to its population. In Holland too, whole villages sheltered Jews. And ironically, half a dozen of those villages, which took in 100, 200, 300 Jews, were right on the German border and they judged correctly that the one place the Germans would not look for Jews in hiding was across the road, across the river, across the hedge, where the new country began. There are so many different examples of family relationships acting as righteous, of husband and wife, of parents and children, I found one case in Amsterdam of three generations of rescuers, a grandmother, her daughter, and her medical student daughter. And they again, rather like Zombinski in the Warsaw Zoo, passed through their home as many as 200 Jews, hiding them five, ten at a time in the attic and then finding them places elsewhere where they could be permanently hidden. The Germans came frequently to this house and they had a system, a system of bells and pulleys so that as the Germans were seen approaching the front or the back door, the Jews who were hiding in the attic would go to a super attic which had been concealed above the attic. The daughter and the granddaughter were arrested many times and tortured People were betraying them, people were saying they're hiding Jews, but somehow they managed neither to succumb under torture or to be properly betrayed. They were some two streets away from the house where Anne Frank and her family and friends were betrayed and sent to their deaths. From 19... 39, from the start of the war to 1943, Italy was an ally of Germany. And the Italian government, headed by Benito Mussolini, refused to deport a single Jew to the camps in German-occupied Europe. Again and again, the German officials at the highest level protested, but in vain. I found an entry in Dr. Goebbels' diary for the 13th of December 1942 when most of the Polish killings having been completed the Germans had become desperate to catch Italian Jewry and deport them from Italy. And Goebbels writes in his diary the Italians are extremely lax in the treatment of the Jews. 
They protect the Italian Jews, not only in Italy, but in Tunis and in occupied France, and will not permit them being drafted for work or compelled to wear the star of David. And Goebbels goes on, this shows once again that fascism does not really dare to get down to fundamentals, but is very superficial regarding problems of vital importance. In Italy, as some of you may know better than me, anti-Semitism was and is still known as the German disease. It was only in October 1943, after the fall of Mussolini and the occupation of northern and central Italy by Germany in an attempt to forestall the Allied conquest of Italy, it was only in October 1943 that Goebbels was able to send deportation squads to Italy to extract Italy's Jews. And what then happened was remarkable. The Vatican ordered all monasteries, nunneries, orphanages in the city and in the countryside around Rome to take in Jews. Some 5,000 Jews were listed by the Germans for deportation from Rome. Three days after they made their surprise move in the city, they could only find just over 1,000. The others had all been hidden, many of them in the buildings of the Vatican itself. Elsewhere in Italy, individual priests played a remarkable part. In the city of Assisi, in St. Francis's city of Assisi, a remarkable man known as Father Nicacci, who had never met a Jew before 1942, uh, organized some 500 escapes, alerted all the wonderful hill monasteries in that region to take Jews in, and discovered that if you put a monk's habit on a Jew, he might be able to walk through the streets past even a German patrol without suspicion. On one occasion, Father Nikach's monastery was raided and he did just that. He lined up his Jews as monks and got away with it. He also, never having met Jews before, became curious about these people and so decided when they told him about their habits and their peculiarities and their customs to provide a kosher kitchen for those in hiding. Probably the only monasteries that have ever had kosher kitchens. <laughs> Another country which took a collective effort to help its Jews was Norway. And here the SS and the Norwegian Quisling movement uh, was very strong. But although 700 Norwegian Jews were deported and killed, more than a thousand were saved. Many of them smuggled across the Norwegian border into Sweden by members of the Norwegian resistance. And the Norwegian resistance has, in fact, a collective medal issued by the State of Israel for its work. One thing which helped the resistance in helping Norwegian Jews 
was that all seven bishops of the Norwegian Lutheran Church resigned in protest at the deportation of the Jews. And on two consecutive Sundays in all their churches, issued defiant prayers and protests and demands their congregation to take action. An even larger number of Jews, the 7,200 Jews of Denmark, were saved when a German diplomat, another righteous German recognized by Rad Vashem, called Georg Duckwitz, who had learned about the deportations, was a diplomat who opposed Nazism, alerted not only the Jewish community, but the Danish political world to what was happening. The heads of the Danish churches came together and protested. The Danish universities closed down in protest. And more importantly, hundreds of individual Jains joined in the move successfully to smuggle all but 400 Jews across the narrow water from Denmark to Sweden. Bulgaria, a very distant country, but one, again, where the Jews wanted, where the Germans wanted all the Jews to be deported to Germany, all 48,000. Bulgaria also collectively protested. The Bulgarian farmers and the farmers' union were so outraged by the demand for deportation that they threatened to lie down on the railway lines through which the trains would have to pass. The two leading churchmen of Bulgaria, the Metropolitan Stefan of Sofia and the Metropolitan Kirill of the city of Plovdiv, led a massive church protest at a public session of the Bulgarian churches, the main church assembly. And the Bulgarian parliament then formally voted against allowing the deportation of Jews. As Hitler did not have the means to occupy Bulgaria and organize the deportation using German troops and German railwaymen and German police, the Jews of Bulgaria were saved. Two final countries, Greece, a country where the German rule was savage, German reprisals brutal. The German people treated with terribly. Yet the Greeks, like the Danes, the Belgians, the Dutch, the French, the Italians, the Bulgarians, acted often collectively to save Jews. The head of the Greek Orthodox Church, Archbishop Damaskinos, who was later to lead the immediate post-war government in Greece, instructed all Greek monasteries, nunneries, and religious institutions to take in and hide any Jew who sought refuge there. And on the predominantly Greek island of Rhodes, it was a Turkish diplomat, Selahattin Ulkumen, who managed to save from deportation those Jews who could somehow or other be given by him Turkish documents and a Turkish connection. Also in Greece, Prince Philip's mother, Princess Alice of Greece, who again in her palace in Athens entertained, had to entertain innumerable high-ranking German and SS officers 
gave refuge at the top of her house to eight Jews who survived the war. Finally, the story of Budapest. In July 1944, more than 200,000 Jews were in danger of deportation from Budapest. And indeed, there had already been some remarkable acts of rescue. Hungary, occupied by Germany only in March that year, only in March 1944, had also resisted all attempts by Hitler to deport its Jews to the death camps. Twice Hitler had summoned the Hungarian regent to Germany to demand instant deportation, and twice the regent, Admiral Horthy, had refused. When the Germans occupied Hungary and Budapest, they had, and the war was almost coming to an end, the last great reservoir, as they described it, of living Jews in Europe. And they deported with incredible rapidity more than half a million Jews from the provinces. And then they came to Budapest. And in Budapest, because it was a capital city, of an independent state, albeit one under German occupation, but it wasn't total occupation, were all the foreign diplomats who represented the neutral countries of the world. And they came together, they formed a committee, an effective committee, and they agreed to establish in Budapest some 80 apartment blocks existing apartment blocks as protected buildings by their government. So the Swedish ambassador, Carl Danielson, and his number two, Per Anger, who died only recently, and a man brought in specially to deal with this question, Raoul Wallenberg, issued protective documents that saved tens of thousands of people. The Spanish ambassador, Angel Sands Briz, did likewise. And his number two, who was not a Spaniard but an Italian, Giorgio Palasco, undertook the task of protecting again tens of thousands of Jews. So too did the Pope's representative in Budapest, Angelo Rotta, who was in fact the head of the committee which rescued these people. And finally the Red Cross representative, Friedrich Born, a very remarkable man, who working closely with a Hungarian religious group called the Good Shepherd Movement saved again tens of thousands of Jews. The Good Shepherd Movement was run by Pastor Stelo, a Hungarian, and he, as the Hungarian fascists began to rampage through the streets, feeling that they were being cheated of their prey as the Russian liberators approached, Pastor Stelo again hid hundreds of Jewish children in his house, in the houses of his relatives and friends and fellow pastors. When the war ended, there are innumerable cases of those who hid Jews and enabled Jews to survive the war being murdered by their neighbors. The curse of rescue. 
The story of the righteous is not, I think, only the story of what individuals and groups of individuals and even nations are capable of doing, but of what human beings are capable of doing for the good in any grim circumstance, and this was by far the grimmest circumstance. In my work, each time I complete reading one of these 20,000 files or corresponding with people who have been rescued, who have sent me their story, I ask myself, could I have acted like this in these circumstances? Would I have tried to? Would I have wanted to? Would I have had the strength to do so? Uh, I'd like to end with a little prayer because it's been introduced three years ago into many of the prayer books which are used on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur as part of the Yiskor service, as part of the memorial service. And the prayer which begins, Yiskor Elohim Nishmot Hasidei Umot Ha'alam, reads in English, May God remember the souls of the righteous men and women of other faiths and backgrounds who have gone to their eternal rest. In tribute to their memory, I pledge to perform acts of charity and justice. May their souls be bound up in the bond of life as an enduring source of blessing. Amen. Thank you very much.